This is the People Process Technology Podcast. Today's broadcast is supported by the OWASP 20th Anniversary Celebration coming September 2021. The CFP is now open for this online 24-hour conference. Go to OWASP.org for more information. And by Jupiter One, providing cyber asset discovery and visibility into your entire cloud-native infrastructure. The top 10 is considered one of the most important community contributions to come out of OWASP. In 2003, just two years after the organization was started, the OWASP Top 10 was created. The purpose of the project was to create an awareness document highlighting the top 10 exploits security professionals should be aware of. Since that time, innumerable organizations have used it as a guideline or framework for creating security programs. The current top 10 list was released four years ago in 2017. As part of a 2021 initiative at OWASP, the OWASP Top 10 is in the process of being updated and scheduled for release this summer in time for the OWASP 20th anniversary celebration. I was curious as to what has changed over the years with the Top 10 and what to anticipate in the coming release. In this broadcast, I talk with Andrew Vanderstock, Executive Director of OWASP. He explains how the Top 10 exploits are chosen the data sources for determining the exploits, and the data research done to verify the selections chosen. Our conversation starts with why the OWASP Top 10 is being spotlighted after being static for the past four years. You guys have started actually spotlighting the OWASP Top 10 again. What, why did that start up again? The OWASP Top 10 should be on a three-year to four-year um, timeline. Uh, because of COVID, we actually didn't get enough data last year, so we had to postpone it. Um, and we're actually in the process now of analyzing the data we've got. And so we're planning on releasing it sometime in the April to May timeframe, uh, depending on the number of drafts we need. Unfortunately, our data scientist has actually caught COVID and uh, he ended up with the, um, the long version, which made things very difficult. So. We are currently working with some other data scientists uh, under his direction to get the analysis done. When we look at the OWASP top 10, Andrew, and what you're seeing currently with the data, I'm sure you kind of glanced at it yourself. Is mm -hmm. it going to change much? Uh, probably shuffling the order a little bit. We're probably not going to see XXE this time. It's still discoverable using source code, um, like static code analysis, but as a issue, that has high impact now, I think it's less of a problem and it'll probably end up in the CRSF type of, on the cusp bucket. So we need to probably discuss what happened to it and have a few issues that are around the edges of the OS top 10 that you should probably still pay attention to. But yeah, I think realistically, will injection still be one? If we bundle cross-site scripting into there as HTML injection, maybe, but otherwise I can't see injections being number one again for the first time in their top 10's history. One of the things that people have talked about a lot in the past when this first started, the OWASP Top 10 started, 
is that there wasn't any kind of input. It was just somebody made up the list and it happened to go viral. Yes. Now, how are you uh, getting the data? Where's the data coming from? We put a call for data out. That was from about mid-year last year. But as I said, it was very slow coming in and we knew that we didn't have enough data. Uh, we continuously get people uh, emailing us and um, pinging us on Twitter and whatnot, saying, oh, we've got some data we'd like to share. And so we've currently got about 220,000 applications worth of data. It's one of the largest repositories of information uh, relating to applications in the world. And I hope that other people can make use of it too. We recently put out a survey. In 2017, we came up with this idea that the OS top 10s always had things shoved into it that didn't quite belong. It was someone's personal opinion. And we felt that that still had value. And so instead of just one person making that decision, like I decided to put CRSF in in 2007, there was no real data for it. Just every application happened to be vulnerable to it. So I put it in and it shouldn't have been one person making that decision. So we went out to the community. And so the survey is actually, I believe, open at the moment. I would have to go and check Twitter just to make sure. But the idea is the InfoSec and developer community can actually tell us what do they believe should be in the iOS top 10 as well. Hopefully, uh, it won't be ones that we already have data for and we get something useful out of it. We've reserved up to two spots for community-driven submissions that there really isn't a lot of data other than people's opinions about it. When we look at this, if I heard you properly, you're going to have this as an open data set. Anybody's going to have access once you're finished? Yep. And we did that with the top 10 2017 as well. You can get the data for the 2017 version and validate what we did. This time, it's a lot of data. Um, so we're probably going to have to figure out a way of uh, exporting it from our database. It's in a Postgres database at the moment and basically compress it um, because there's quite a lot of data. That brings up two questions that I'd have right away then. One, are people going to get the raw data set or is it going to be filtered before they get it? I think we probably will need, to, we've had some submissions where they didn't want to have the vendor name associated with it. If we can make that anonymous enough so it's not obvious as to who created the data, I think we'll have it just as unfiltered because I think every good science project should actually have the raw data for you to do your own analysis and to work out what we did. In the 2017 version, we had uh, 40 something thousand apps given to us by a static code analysis vendor. And if we hadn't have done filtering of some description or normalization, it would have overwhelmed the rest of the data set. And so we had to do something. Whether people agree with us on that or not is interesting. And I think if you have the raw data, you can actually agree with us or not. When we're looking at this, then it sounds as if when you go out to the community, it's not really a survey per se, but you're actually having security vendors send you data sets and you're collating those? Yes, small, medium and large, but, um, you know, security consultancies, uh, tool vendors, bug bounty providers, uh, we're getting a lot of different sources of data. Um, interestingly, in 2017, we had a very late submission from a bug bounty vendor. Luckily, their data coincided with the data that we had. So we were very satisfied that we actually had the right analysis. But you've got to realize bug bounties, they only include stuff they agree with their clients is a real problem. Therefore, you don't get false positives. And two, basically bug bounties show what interests people who are paying for bugs to be discovered. And yet it actually matched the data that we had from other vendors as well. 
So that's really good. That's actually something I didn't expect. And that was a good piece of information, actually. One of the things that is very apparent from a vendor standpoint is a lot of vendors have jumped on the bandwagon and are creating, quote, quote, OWASP top 10 tools. Mm -hmm. Where do you guys stand on that? Uh, we are working on a trademark program. So we've actually had four trademarks registered. Um, so, you know, not just the TM, but the R version of trademarks. We will be following up with vendors who are claiming this and ask them to either become a corporate member and therefore continue with the current practice. Or alternatively, we'll ask for them for a license fee if it's, you know, pretty gregarious. My last choice, because I really don't want us to be a, a litigious uh, trademark holder. I think that's counterproductive for our mission. I really want to make sure that we cover fair use so that people who are talking like on YouTube for 10 minutes who don't get any money, I think that's absolutely a fair use. Whereas I think, you know, a large organization who has hundreds of courses online are all about the OS top 10 and they're earning money from it. The least they could do for us is become a corporate member. When we're looking forward now, we've got an, a new one coming out 2021, mid-year, it sounds like. About mid -year. I think mid-year is pretty realistic, yeah. When is the feedback period? Um, once we've written something, which we haven't even started at this point, um, I've got a graphic designer um, who's going to be submitting a new look and feel for us because we want to be mobile friendly, um, so mobile first. Uh, the cheat sheets is now our most popular uh, destination because it is mobile friendly. The OS Top 10 held that position as the most popular pages on the OS website for a better part of 15 years. And to show that, you know, mobile is really quite important. We can't have a PowerPoint presentation that's a PDF, not in this day and age. Um, so what we're looking for is something that looks good, modern design, mobile friendly. Um, once we've got that sorted, we'll actually understand how much space we've got. I do want to get a one-page infographic going. Let's say that we'll be ready for probably some initial comments um, in late April, but because we're working directly in GitHub, you can watch us write it. We're not hiding. This is a difference between the 2017 and earlier versions. The 2017 version was the first version we wrote in public, and that's the way it should be. There should be no guesses as to who wrote what. You mentioned mobile, and it kind of got my mind off on a tangent. Isn't there a mobile top 10? There is indeed a mobile top 10. I was really talking about the presentation of the OS top 10 rather than the, um, what it was designed to cope with. I think we do need to be a bit more specific. I think we were covering too much ground in the previous 2017 version. I think we need to really focus on web apps and you know responsive apps, not necessarily IoT, not necessarily mobile. You're working on a secure coding group, right? We actually do have a uh, code reviews guide, like the code guide. Um, and we also have um, some folks working on a web testing guide, which has got more of a developer type focus. We're trying to reach out to more developers at the moment. And I think to focus more heavily upon those cheat sheets that are focused on developers, how to prevent things uh, is much more important than how to hack things. I think how to hack things is well covered at this point. The thing that I don't see, Andrew, and maybe I'm missing it, is the correlation between these major projects. If you have something like the top 10, do the projects around it try to relate to it or is everything a standalone project? It definitely was a standalone project, but I've actually been talking with various different groups. 
there is a um, program on at the moment called the Common Requ uh, Requirements Enumeration that's being run out of the OpenSSF, which is a Linux Foundation activity. Um, we want to align our taxonomy across our projects with that initiative. So essentially, in terms of the ASVS, the MASVS, the mobile top 10, the OS top 10, the proactive controls, they all have this same taxonomy. I think that's a really important thing. The ASVS itself, which I'm also a co-leader of, we're looking at another larger version next year. And I think that's a chance for us to align with this potential common requirements enumeration that the OpenSSF is busy producing. When it comes to the, the current version that you're working on, what kind of community involvement are you looking for? Well, quite frankly, I want community involvement. It's not just the four leaders who get to write. I think everybody in the community should have a chance. This is how we grow our projects. I don't want the idea that the OS top 10 is always going to be four people because back in 2016, there was just one person. Then it was me. And then I invited more people on board that I thought were good. But I really think the benefit of OWASP is our community. I'd really like people to help. Um, if you've got graphic design skills, if you've got data analysis skills, if you've got um, you know, the ability to write text, uh, a developer background, somebody who can actually come in and contribute something positive to the, um, to the actual development of the OWASP top 10, I'd love to have a long author list. At the moment, we've got four. Uh, I would like to see more because that generates our next generation of leaders. I think that's key too, Andrew. One of the things that doesn't get talked about net a lot is like, how are we mentoring and nurturing that next generation? And I know that's another discussion, but this would be a great place to start. Absolutely. And that's actually how we got the new leader for the ASVS. Tom, uh, Josh Grossman um, was editing and giving us lots of advice. And in the end, he became one of the co-leaders. And now he was responsible pretty much for putting 402 out the door. And without helping the community to contribute, I would never have, we, I don't think we would have seen 402 of the ASVS coming out. As always, thank you for no what worries, you're doing and you. for the conversation. No worries, anytime, Mark. This is the People Process Technology Podcast. Today's broadcast is supported by the OWASP 20th anniversary celebration coming September 2021. The CFP is now open for this online 24-hour conference. Go to OWASP.org for more information. And by Jupiter One, providing cyber asset discovery and visibility into your entire cloud-native infrastructure. <laughs>